0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a, ca- a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balharan. Um, More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking uh, with friend and colleague, Dr. Veena Howard. She's a professor of Asian religious traditions um, and endowed uh, chair in Jain and Hindu Dharma, at uh, the department of philosophy at california state university fresno and also director of the mk gandhi center we'll be speaking about a a, a fascinating um, um collected volume that uh she has edited uh, gandhi's global legacy moral methods and modern challenges Vina, welcome back to the podcast
1: thank you thank you so much for inviting me again i'm happy to be back
0: yes yeah, so we're very happy to have you back so we talked a little bit previously about your, your, your work and your interest in Gandhi, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about the backstory, about this volume. What was the genesis? How, how did this come together?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned that I'm a Gandhi scholar, and I have written many articles and a monograph on Gandhi as well. The uh, This book's genesis ideas came with the uh, Gandhi's 150th birth anniversary, which happened in um, 2019, because he was born in 1869. So there were celebrations all over the world, including we had at Fresno State, a conference uh, symposium um, at Fresno State. Um, I began to think about the question of relevance of Gandhi in today's world because things have changed so much in 150 years. And Gandhi continues to be very important and sort of um, in the center of debates about, is it almost like a re-emerging interest in Gandhi? Some people thought, well, he will go away because we, his ideas were, some of the ideas are archaic and some ideas may not be relevant for today. But as I studied and as I watched unfolding his birthday celebration all over the world, and how the UN celebrated, Nancy Pelosi talked about it. I wanted to do something very interesting about thinking about Gandhi in an interdisciplinary way, not just in terms of nonviolence and satyagraha. So that's how I began to think about this volume.
0: Fascinating. Um, so there are a number of sections in the volume that sort of impinge on Gandhi's um, uh, wide ranging influence. Um, uh, the, the first section of the volume is uh, Gandhi's Legacy Lessons of Nonviolence as the Creative Force of the Universe. Uh, there are, there are uh, I forgot to count, I think there are about 18, 16 uh, contributions. Um, and we may not touch on every single one of them, but we perhaps can say a little bit about each section
1: of the work. How does that sound? Sound like a good path forward? Right. Um, Yes, that's works. So the the title is Gandhi's Global Legacy, um, Moral Methods and Modern Challenges. And that was very intentional uh, to choose that uh, title because at a time when, you know, a couple of years after um, the BLM movement and the climate crisis uh, issues and all kinds of issues we are facing that we didn't have vocabulary, or they were not available uh, in the Gandhi's time. So I just wanted to say modern challenges and moral methods, because how we can use the idea of uh, using moral methods in today's world, because a lot of people are calling it as a post-truth age, age, or some people are talking about, you know, doomsday scenario. But you know, I wanted to look at how Gandhi's message can be relevant. So, in the first section, the nonviolence as a creative force of the universe, I sort of uh, lifted out of the just um, nonviolent action and nonviolent strategies to as a force. It's not simply a a person's uh, monopoly or a system's monopoly or Gandhi's monopoly. It is a force. Because and then I take the phrase that from Reverend James Lawson Jr., who was um, deeply inspired by Gandhian methods and strategies, and used them to desegregate uh, Nashville, um, Tennessee, many public spaces. And he was um, he offered this talk at Fresno State, and then I. Um, Co-edited with him to make it a to make it a chapter is called Mahatma Gandhi: A Challenge to America. He says that that it really is Gandhi challenges our our thought processes, our choices, what we are doing in in the United States with the rise of just uh, um, unbridled capitalism, the uh, not caring for the environment and not building cohesive societies. So he really, He's a 95 year young uh, African American civil rights leader, and he he's so clear. If I really recommend people who are listening to read his, um, t- his his chapter, that how he really crystallizes the the nonviolence as a creative force. He says that as a mother takes care of, or the parents take care of a newborn baby, and the baby is so helpless. All over the world, people are doing that. So that is the force of the universe that we are d- driven by love, not hate. We are driven by the force of nonviolence, not violence. In the same section, um, Erica Chenoweth, who is a Harvard professor, does a great um, uh, provides a great piece on how non-civil resistance or nonviolence resistance has been successful throughout the world more than violent confrontations. So she is a social scientist, so she gives the data. It's not simply talking about, we do as philosophy, do philosophy stories, but she gives data. And she has graphs in that chapter, shows you how the civil resistance works. And the third chapter on that section is uh, by Douglas Allen, who is a philosophy professor, now a but a great peace activist. And um, then she writes, he writes the moral, philosophical, and spiritual basis of Gandhi's transformative nonviolence. And he looks into the moral principles and philosophical principles of Gandhi's nonviolence. But before this section, my I write a very, a very extensive introduction which provides a whole sweeping overview of um, how Gandhi influenced the United States, how Gandhi was influenced by the United States leaders, how his methods continue to be used all over the world, and what's the promise of Gandhi's methods and ideas for the future.
0: Well, those are tantalizing lines of thoughts. So and then you have to tell us, tell us, tell us a bit about what you say in the intro. You know, what is the relationship between, you know, Gandhi's influence on the United States and and vice versa? Um, tell us a bit about that. And then uh, in any particular order, uh, also comment, say a bit more about the underlying idea with this, these first three papers about nonviolence as a creative force, as as something above and beyond uh our prima facie actions towards violence or nonviolence uh, is something of perhaps the philosophical spiritual ontological dimension that i think might be might be evasive for many uh, listeners who are familiar with with gandhi's uh, nonviolence so yeah in, in no particular order i would love to hear a little bit more about those
1: Right, I really like your questions because you have a way to ask questions. They are just really, um, it's almost kid in the candy shop. I love your, that's what the one thing about as interviewer that you know how to ask good questions. Uh, So the idea sometimes people think the nonviolence is just not harming. You hit me and I just become quiet and somebody's invading my country, I can just be acquiesce. And how can non-violence be work? It can work in the against people say the um, lot of autocrats, a lot of uh, leaders like Hitler or leaders like, you know, in a, situations that are very difficult. I mean, they'll go to those um, examples. But Lawson and this section is doing it. There is something in the human nature. There is something in this universe that we do respond to love and we do respond to when we stand with truth, when we stand with justice, when we stand with what is right So this is the this is the has not been very um, finally uh, in fine way uh, described by many. It's either it is a more like a uh, being in Brahman in Hinduism. It's an ontological principle, isness. But being is being you. Being be on the the being is truth, right? Sat is the sat is the truth. It's not just speaking truth. It's just believing in the principle of the universe. What uh, Martin Luther King Jr. says, the arc of the universe is bent toward justice, right? Is the justice, Is the love. We won't be here, any one of us, if we didn't have love from our family, our parents, our uncles, our aunts, our universe, our earth. We are nurtured each day by those things. And this is the creative force. But when I use this in action, when I express this in action with love, with kindness and standing up to a person who is doing wrong, This is not going to happen now. We are going to stop this and we're going to do it in a different way. But it requires a lot of intention. It requires practice. It requires belief in one's own self and this force. Because the universe is loving in the overall, because the, the fact that we have over 7 billion people in the world There is a reason for it all over the world that people are surviving and going forward. So that's the one thing about that section. And then when Erika Chenevat shows that on the graph, all over the world, not just United States, all over the world, thousands of campaigns, the ones which are nonviolent, they are more successful than the ones who are violent, which are violent. So what is that? Nobody has, some of them don't even know Gandhi's name. Some don't even invoke Gandhi's idea, but they just have heard from one party to second party, third party, fourth party protest, standing up against injustice. Strike, like unions are striking right now. They're not saying Gandhi did that, so we learned from it, even though we can trace the genealogy of these protests to Gandhi, right? Because he's the first one who brings the idea of using nonviolence, on the mass scale. And he was the first one, I mean, among all, you know, Karl Marx is talks about and other philosophers, but in action. When I say first one, not in theory, but in action, he says the labor union should have right to strike when they are not uh, given whatever dignity of life. So I think the, the creative force becomes a very, very important idea of It's like you say, ontological principle, spiritual principle, even though we may not be religious, we do believe in the being on the side of truth. That's why Gandhi began to say it rather than uh, truth. God is truth. He began to say truth is God, because when we are on the side of truth, side of right, side of justice, side of love, magic happens because the untruth cannot win for too long.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating proposition on the one hand, um, clearly uh, the, the notion of ahimsa, of course, uh, we can think of as one of the five classical uh, virtues or precepts, you know, satya ahimsa. They are from a particular um, uh, sociocultural religious paradigm that, you know, is obviously part of renouncer movements and moral personal perfection. And on the other hand, um, you know, I've watched humans for a very long time. Uh, I love uh, hearing stories. I love interviewing people. I love putting pieces together on this little thing called the human experience. And it's almost as if it's not a question of what you believe in, but that you believe in something. It's a question of anchoring your efforts to something greater than self. And that can be religious. That can be spiritual, philosophical. That can be, uh, I find that people can move mountains if they're doing it. For their children, for their cause, for their love of animals, for X, Y, Z, P, Q, and the idea of connecting with a cause, a force, a source greater than yourself. And it's um, inexhaustibly um, energizing because that cause, that force, that idea, that thing for which you live will, will be there. You know, as a source of inspiration, so uh, yeah. fascinating. Uh, as for questions, I uh, I ask purposely naive questions, typically, and, and hope for the best. But anyhow, tell us a little bit about the influence of America on Gandhi and the influence of Gandhi on America. Tell we uh, we have a global audience, of course, and uh, there's a great number of our audience members uh, located in, in the U.S. and of course, the U.S. plays a a, a a huge role on the global stage. So tell us tell us a bit about this relationship.
1: Yes, so this is my new project uh, that I am working on right now. Uh, But I have done quite a bit of research in that. The number of people know about um, Gandhi's influence on Martin Luther King Jr. uh, that uh, Dr. King went to India in 1959 and he visited, Gandhi was not alive at that time, but he visited um, various ashrams and Joel Nehru and talked about and he came back and wrote a wonderful article, My Trip to the Land of Gandhi, something like that, the title of the other chapter is, and he invokes, he says that directly, he credits Gandhi for his belief in a newfound belief in nonviolence. First, he thought that he won't the nonviolence can't work because, you know, Jim Crow laws and the systems were so awful and so oppressive. How can nonviolence? How how are they going to respond to nonviolence? Right? Is it rightly people can ask. Um, but then he sees Gandhi's message. But then before that, uh, Dr. King. Um, Reverend James Lawson uh, went to India in 1953. Not much is written about him. I just published an article on him through Emory University, um, one of their publications. And I he calls it love force, um, then truth, truth for soul force to Satyagraha, Gandhi's method rather than passive resistance and he goes to 1953 to India, and then he goes to different ashrams, and I think he met with Vinoba and many, because now Gandhi has been assassinated for only six years. So India is a nascent, um newly born independent country. And um, he kind of serves um, as a teacher and mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. But before that, (laughs) so I'm going back and back and back. 1936, um, there was an African-American leader, theologian, Todd Excellence. His name is Howard Thurman. He went to India. 1936, Raj, he goes to Gandhi's ashram with his wife, Subeli Thurman, and a group of uh, people. And they stay in, they have several meetings with Gandhi. And he comes back so inspired that Gandhi's nonviolence can be used um, all over the world or in our African-American context. Before that, there was an author named Richard Gregg who writes um, about Gandhi's nonviolence. And um, his writings became so popular because he was able to translate the idea of nonviolence very coherently uh, for the Western audience. Because he, Gandhi wrote, Gandhi did, Gandhi was giving speeches, Gandhi was not a, he was not coherently articulating all the method, how to do things, right? So Richard Craig, um comes in, it, I think it's 1933, um, as early, very early on. And then comes Krishnanal Sridharni. he also writes a book on um, Gandhi's called the, uh, another book he writes. Not only that, the American journalists were going to India in 1920s, early 20s. There was a constant interchange of knowledge from Gandhian struggles to struggles in the United States. There were um, not only African-American leaders like W.B. Du Bois and others, these are the well-known names, the Quakers. They were American pacifist movement was very, very influenced by Gandhian thought. So we are talking about mid-20s, mid-30s, mid-40s, and then comes mid-50s Lawson. Then comes mid uh, the Reverend um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then comes the um, Vietnam War. How much Gandhi is influenced by, Gandhi's influence come, shows up in Vietnam War. Then comes Cesar Chavez, who is in my own uh, San Joaquin Valley, who is a, he worked um, to fight for, Mexican farm workers' rights and he was so devoted to Gandhi Raj. He was so he is now so from and then Tiknahan comes he to the United he is so then comes the Gandhi film in so it's like a whole spectrum of Gandhian ideas. And not to say that Gandhi is also influenced by the United States. He's asking all these questions, he's thinking about untouchability and now in the terms of racism in the United States, they make him aware of what untouchability is in India. It is the racism that we have in the United States. So they, he starts to see this dark connections because of the African-American leaders and the United States of America's um, struggle for their own social justice issues and equality issues.
0: Is it fair to say that Gandhi's uh, significant, his, his trenchant legacy, his global legacy, as you call it, is it fair to say that that legacy is relatively unknown uh, beyond maybe South Asianists or maybe even among South Asians? I don't know. Is it fair to say that uh, really um, there, the, the, the folks don't have a sense of the trajectory of of this line of thought or these ideas? Um, and it's quite not comparable to, uh, for example, when we have a Western chain of ideas from this thinker to this thinker to this thinker, it's clear, the philosophical line is much clearer in the ways we teach and understand it. But in this particular case, for whatever reason, to my mind, uh, there's a little bit of occlusion in terms of the inspiration and the genesis um, uh, of the mass application of these ideas. Could you comment a little bit about that?
1: You're absolutely right. Um Raj, that is um, Gandhi's uh, popularity just begins, so I think it's he, you know, is he's one of the most written about person of the 20th century. No doubt about that. Uh, there are over 500 biographies and continues to be added to the list. And um, he was the runner-up to the Time, Times Magazine's person of the year. And uh, uh, Einstein was the first and uh, I write in my uh, book in my introduction the irony is that Einstein paid the most appreciative and honorable tribute to Gandhi he said we need Gandhi not my of course you know his ideas are amazing change our physical material world but it also we have created this power in the human's hands that we don't know how to use it. And that's what the moral methods need. That's what the moral compass needs to hone that, to circumscribe that power, to, to, to control that power that we have right now, technology and AI and all these wonderful things we are experiencing. At the same time, we are sitting on Sort of a you know ticking bomb in a weird way you know so that's why Gandhi, Einstein got Gandhi he was he wrote a tribute for him and he said generations to come will scarce believe such a man walked on this earth in flesh and blood that's what his quotes are but he won wins the uh, you know uh, Time magazine's Person of the Year but he, Gandhi was runner up and. So there is a kind of a sense of the people, he shook the world in a strange way. And Martin uh, the our Reverend James Lawson says in his chapter, Gandhi was, in his opinion, was worthy of that. You know, it's, it's our leader, African-American civil rights leader. And he says, because Gandhi gave the method to the world, where we can live together and flourish together and live in peace for generations. Not just simply short-term enjoyments, not simply quick sensationalizing ideas. He gave a sustained way to live together and flourish together, which was, you know, the way more I study Gandhi, Raj, more I didn't study Gandhi because I knew much about him. I was kind of questioning him the reason I began to study him. I didn't know because my parents were in the um, India-Pakistan division or partition and they were refugees and my father was quite unhappy with what had happened and so I was not, you know, I had mixed stories from the world when I was growing up in India. There were some were really adulating Gandhi and some were, you know, Not like it continues to this day today and um, or blaming him for everything wrong happened to India. You know, that's like the mom and dad get blamed. But then made me uh, think about or to study it. And the more I study, the more I feel it's not that he's a perfect man. I'm a scholar. I don't go there. But the ideas can be, of course, rethought, reimagined, reconfigured for our current times
0: perhaps say a word, I mean, there's a number of, there are a number of um, areas um, wherein we trace Gandhi's legacy in the book. Say a word about gender, Gandhi's influence on gender.
1: So uh, Gandhi wasn't raised at a time where um, the LGBTQ, uh, the issues, uh, plus issues are now different, but Gandhi was... <laughs> living in an area where women were relegated to very lower status. He was living in an area when even the British women did not have right to vote, and American women didn't have, you know. So this was a time where um, suffragette movement and India especially with the um, Multiple, regardless of our goddess tradition and worshipping, you are the goddess scholar, Raj, how we elevate goddess to the highest being. Um, And then the women were not treated on equal terms, including him, what he was doing to his wife. You know, earlier times he was being a patriarch. The. What the shift comes in his life, and I'm I'm part of the kasuruba Gandhi documentary as well. His wife, she becomes a really major influence on his life. So gender issues become very very important to him. He said the the world, what he says that one of the problems that we have in the in India that we have really ignored and mistreated the half of the um, citizen, citizenry in India, which are the women. But I think I I can even go further how he talks about himself as in more, he said, I want to go beyond male and female. So he's almost talking about in a transcending gender, because he thinks that even male and female binaries, gender binaries can be problematic. So we see that even in his, and there's some more work, somebody wrote an article I just reviewed for a journal on this topic, he calls himself eunuch. He calls himself, I am trying to um, transcend both male and female because the Brahman, the divine, the truth is neither male nor female. And in his personal life, he, he talks about how women feel so safe with him. He toward the end of his life, 1947, Many Muslim women came to him one time and said about after the partition, and they were afraid in Delhi about persecution and all kind of violence. And as they came, they had pardan; they were veiled. But when they came to Gandhi to have his audience, they took out their veils. They felt so safe, and is is that the one? Uh, you know, if you read it, not many people know these kind of the facts, they're not stories, the historical facts that they felt that is only they take their wells off in front of other women. So Gandhi said, I have become a woman so that women feel very comfortable with me. So what does it mean by I have become a woman? It is not just physical sex change or gender change or whatever we talk about, is the mental going away from the binary of um, sexual binaries. And he becomes the greatest champion for women's um, equality. And the Indian women participated in his um, many campaigns more than men at times, and they were equally participating. And he was the first one to make the Congress party's leader, Sarojini Naidu. It was 19, early 20s or 21 or 22, the time when British women just were struggling to get the right to vote and he was making uh sarojini naidu the um congress leader which is you know the highest uh, you know everybody will be under her so and then women once they were india was freed and i can see now with the new law in india that you know for that just just happened you know 50% women's um I don't know what they call it, affirmative action. And they were invoking Gandhi. That's so fascinating to see for me, that how it is sort of, regardless of love-hate relationship with him, some ideas just trickle down.
0: Mm. Tell us about his legacy on religious diversity.
1: That's one of the areas that Gandhi's legacy should be highlighted more than any area. I mean, of course, you know, other areas important. At a time... When the terms like interfaith, interreligious did not even surfaced, Gandhi was doing interfaith meetings, prayer meetings, what he called, in which he had um, readings from different scriptures, from the followers of different traditions. He modified a song called Raja Ram, Ishwar Allah, tero nam, Ishwar and Allah both are your name. So he one of the his contributions to the discourse of interfaith is how to do interfaith. How do I do? It's not simply I sit down with and do a dialogue. How not only I learned, I study the scriptures of different traditions, according to him, that we should study not only our own scriptures, because he said people take out verses from different texts and say, look, Gita says this, uh, go to war. Oh, Quran says this, or the Bible has said, Jesus says this. And he says, you can't do this. You have to. Read the first scriptures of the traditions with reverence. Also understand the authority of the people's religions or the people who belong to that religion. Listen to them. You, I can't just constantly, you know, we have this debate in the academy. I was looking at the AR sessions and this one session, is just looked at this morning, it says, who speaks for Hinduism? And it's like now, who
0: speaks for Hinduism? Now, anyhow, now. I, I saw I saw it as well. But yes, please continue. Sorry to interrupt.
1: Yeah, no, no. I was, you know, i was just. I was going to pause, and I was going to say now. <laughs> I was going to pause a long time, because who is speaking for Hinduism? I mean, the question itself for Gandhi would be problematic. Because it's a Hindu idea, is it a religion idea, or is it a people idea? Now you have three things together. Can we ask that question? He will say, any person who reads it carefully, and you can be self-critical of your own, he was very much into being self-critical of your own religions. He was one of this. he said, I'd rather untouchability um, die than Hinduism live. He went that far because he knew they were incompatible. That's why he said it's not the Hinduism's unity of all. Atman is Brahman, Brahman is Atman. And this whole idea of the divine unity is incompatible with untouchability. So he was going reading the scriptures in a very, you know, the lens of uh, love and ahimsa. He and I think that's the whole point that when we don't have the lens of ahimsa and truth, that was the parameter that he was reading scripture. So I just gave, I wrote a I was invited by somebody Texas to write an article on that. Um, I can send it to you about interfaith and Gandhi's inter- contributions. And people are reading it. And I make a 6 a, a part list of things, what what we can learn from Gandhi, and the one studying the scripture of other people, taking their word, rev, having reverence, um, being charitable to others, all kinds of, he gives to-do list, break, breaking the barriers, breaking the boundaries. Don't say Hindu Muslims, Hindu Christian, Hindu Sikhs, Hindu Jain sikh no, Christian. We are people first, then we are religious. And he was really into religious education, he thought was very necessary. But at the same time, he in the toward the end of his life, he said, first he didn't use to like interfaith marriages, intercaste marriages. He really pushed for interfaith and intercaste marriages. He said that will bring down the boundaries.
0: And the body was Gandhi, was Gandhi <laughs> a pacifist.
1: Um, he wouldn't like that word. He was, a, pac- a pacifist has a, a very unique um, connotation. Gandhi, Gandhi's guide was the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so Gandhi would say, all means should be exhausted, but at times one has to stand up. So I will quote for you. Suppose a man run amok with a weapon in his hand, trying to harm Many of your fellow people, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, it's your duty to stop that lunatic, that's a quote, even if it means to killing or taking their lives. That is not act of violence, that's act of nonviolence. So you save many, but that's a that text has to be contextualized. That does not give you permission to... We can always justify wars, right? He was totally anti-war as as because he thought that wars will not bring peace. How can a violence can bring peace? And we have not seen in the world from Mahabharata to the to this day that any war has brought peace, maybe for a short duration of time, but not a long-lasting peace.
0: This is a very timely um consideration. Uh, There are uh, many issues uh, bubbling up in the global sphere, that this conversation pertains to. And it seems to me that um, the bubbling up (laughs) the ripples will continue for some time, and will most likely worsen and implicate a number of nations. But it seems to me that potentially, on the other side of that horizon, we need to find a way for lasting peace, and lasting peace has to be such that folks are on the other side of whatever is bubbling up, whether it takes days or decades to settle. Um, lasting peace is one where uh, the recognition of the of humanity, of all peoples, all factions, right? Uh, concern, you know, this, this sort of ahimsa, as a a positive force it's sort of a compassionate care right it's not just abstaining from harm it's just this recognition of the the inalienable sovereignty and, and dignity of the of 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 the other and so I think um there might uh one might view uh the scholarly enterprise and even you know, uh, philosophical enterprises impractical, but there's a reason why uh, the lofty philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita takes place on the battlefield, because um, these concerns are are crucial, and uh, we've we've hashed out various considerations since the last major global conflict. We've instituted some sort of safeguards and guidelines, and yet to what avail. <laughs> to what avail it's not it's not the it's not the the frameworks the rubrics the policies uh the laws the international humanitarian law etc etc it's the individuals at the helm and it's their ability to recognize the humanity of all involved be it their kith or kin or their enemy so to my mind definitely fascinating and um relevant and timely discourse irrespective of one's standing or take belief faction um, now there's a, a i think perhaps in a moment i will read out the the, the list of contributors because there's there fine scholars and fascinating contributions uh, but just to keep things more, 30,000 foot view for, for our conversation, because, of course, the, the link will be in the podcast notes and folks will dive in to the book if, 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 if they wish. Um, tell us a bit about the process of, of editing this volume. I mean, for, for the listeners who are just listening, perhaps you're driving, perhaps you're washing dishes, perhaps you're who knows what, and you can't quite click on the link for the the notes. There There are six parts, five parts to the book. The first part is Gandhi's legacy, lessons of nonviolence as the creative force of the universe. The second part is Gandhi's legacy, lessons in gender issues, pacifism, and international relations. Part three is lessons in health and healing, pluralism, and public memory of Gandhi's communes. Part four, lessons in religious diversity, religious dialectics, and religion in public life. Part five, critical reflections and constructive advancements of Gandhi's moral methods. We'll definitely touch on that before we close. But I wish to ask, from the bird's eye view of having edited this, what what stuck out in your mind? What surprised you? What was impressed upon you um, about this process?
1: I think just the, what, as you know, you have a list of 20 people and you, as you know, as an editor, And then some fall away, some complete the project, some newly added, uh, sadly, Joseph Prabhu passed away. So we just um, used a shorter reflection from him. Um, What really impressed me, the variety of Gandhi's global impact. So the book is so interdisciplinary. So we have, most books are either professor of philosophy or political science or peace studies, you know, this book was not easy for a Gandhi scholar to navigate. I grew up a lot by by working on this book because it is navigating so many fields. So Reverend James Lawson is a theologian, activist, um, Eric Kachinwith is a political scientist from Harvard. Douglas Allen is a philosopher, peace activist. And then Gail Presby, she does a great work in uh, gender or the Gandhi's or the impact of suffrage movement on Gandhi. So that's such an amazing piece that how Gandhi was influenced by the women's movement. So that's the that's the beauty of this book is that it goes back and forth dialogue. It's not a one way. So the Gandhi was watching and he had many conversations with women leaders. And then um, my colleague, Andrew Fiala, who is a pacifist and we have many conversations together and he writes about Gandhi's idea of pacifism. He really defines how Gandhi's uh, pacifism is so important for today's world. And um, Devidatta Aurobinda Mahapatra, he's a peace studies scholar, and he talks about Gandhi's approach to international relations. He really challenges the UN, uh, the whole the Western framework of good versus evil. These are evil forces. These are good forces. This is right. This is wrong. Just a binaries of, you know, and not really studying Gandhi's ideas closely still staying in the western framework just really really allegiance to it hasn't broken out of that even though like you said there are systems in place but they're still working in uh, under that framework and then the the next section is very interesting the health healing pluralism and public memory of Gandhi Sasham. so makran in, Paranjapi from india who's english um Professor of uh, English, he writes about how Gandhi uses the um, various herbs, healing practices to create himself a very good mind and sound and body, and how you know health uh, can be aided by diet and um, sexual control and the good air quality and sleeping. All these things—it's just fascinating—in the article on health, and then the. Jeffrey Long he takes a Jain view of the many many-sidedness of the reality and shows how Gandhi is looking at for his nonviolent activism. The the next uh, chapter by Carleen McLean is fascinating. She does study in India and in Gandhi's ashrams and she writes about how Gandhi's ashrams are reframed the the narratives that he framed in the modern context. So they are dealing with the modern issues as that. so it's just fascinating article, which we don't see too many times that conversation. And the next section is the religious dialectist, religious pluralism and diversity. I mean, Thais is Islam scholar uh, and she, he talks about that how Gandhi brings Gandhi in conversation with contemporary Islam and, and really challenges People do really think about this um hermeneutic that Gandhi provides through nonviolence and through interfaith relations. And then Shivani Bhothara is a Jainism uh talks about um Gandhian non, I call it Draj hyphenated and non-hyphenated. So non-hyphenated is the Jainism, Hinduism, precepts, language, non-violence, don't kill. But non-violence without hyphen, it becomes a system in itself. It is a strategy, practice, truth force, love force. It's a system. It's not just simply not harming. It's, It's going after the structures of violence. And I have to define that idea a little more. Um, and then Sanjay um amazingly, he's also a philosophy professor. He writes about religion in public life, and he takes on the idea of that religion should be taught in, in our, our world so that we can be knowledgeable about it rather than being secular in a way that we don't study religions. Um, and then the lastly, the section is the critical reflection is the really is a critical reflection on the chapters. Uh, the one is on Mulak Rajanand who was a great author um, and he wrote many novels. He wrote one of them were um, I think is the he's several several novels he writes and then he lives in the Gandhi's ashram and uh, but he's ambivalent about pacifism because he says when the war is when the fight is important that's the the very very important point that when is though he was really struggling but then he makes a full circle back to and he really pays highest tribute to gandhi's nonviolence but initially his his his, his um characters um in the books are constantly are going back and forth on nonviolence violence peace standing up for justice and he calls names by Gandhi uh, sometime, you know, father figure in his his novel. So it's kind of very cool. Uh, The way Ashley Foster, she's English professor. The next chapter, Cheney Ryan, who is a peace uh, activist, peace uh, scholar and philosophy uh, scholar. He's also at Oxford uh, now. And he really brings that anger uh, idea. He says that, do not let your anger die. He shows that anger is important rather than, and I think Gandhi, when Gandhi says no anger, he's looking at more psychological uh, way of that anger occludes our sense of awareness, like the Bhagavad Gita. But the positive anger, against injustice injustices gandhi embodied that otherwise he won't be able to stand up for the what truth is so he um writes in a back and forth he challenges gandhi for not being um, angry but also then he goes back and says yes there was a um you know there can be must be there is some kind of a driving force in gandhi that compelled him to do stand up for right
0: and could in the last
1: say, could we say outrage? Sorry? Outrage? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a language um which is gets in uh, on the way. And I think it's more, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. The outrage, Gandhi was outrageous when he was thrown out of the train. Gandhi was outrageous on the South um tax. But he did not want to go to anger though, you know, because he thought the anger can bring violence and and because he is a um, Mahatma in a way he wants to be because he is the one who synthesizing his political struggle or political of uh, goal of political freedom with spiritual freedom. And so he has a different project than more other political activists may have because he is really treading both paths at the same time and consciously, speaking about it writing about it declaring it confirming it so in that way the anger was a sage is not comely to say sage if Would that you makes
0: say sense. yeah yeah certainly what you say makes sense with respect uh to that uh the penultimate chapter I think it was by um Janie Ryan um. Do not let your anger die. Just to make sense of this uh, from sort of uh, what we know to be true of Gandhi from his, his writings. Um, could it be the case that he wasn't angry, but he experienced outrage in a sense? Would you say that Gandhi experienced outrage? And that that is a driving force that um, Ryan is saying one should not let die?
1: I agree with that. I I do. I think it's without outrage. How can I even stand up? I mean, the man didn't sleep more than two and a half hours a night. Um, There was something really was urgent and outrageous was going around, not only simply what the British colonialism was doing, but within uh, his own India, in our own Hinduism, in our own systems, what's going on against women, against the what's happening with untouchability, what's happening with injustices within India. I mean, he is not, it doesn't seem like just an aqueous saint sitting just blessing like the Buddha. I mean, he is, you can see in his, what our footage we have, he's kind of, I like the word outrage because he feels agitated a little bit. I, I like the word, what they called it. Um, John Lewis, uh, Senator John Lewis, and the uh, Congressman John Lewis, and the uh, they call it agitators, uh, or call it good trouble. <laughs> you know, so anger not as simply rolling your eyes and yelling abusive language, and you know, so calling names for British, which most of a lot of people do. Movements about the opponent, he didn't want to go there. And I think that's because that's connected to his principle of ahimsa and love force and creative force. If I really believe in that, that my opponent, the person is divine, how can I be angry at you? And Swaraj, and this idea of Swaraj. How do I do that? So you become outraged at the action, at the work, at the system, at the policy, at the taxation, but not the anger usually becomes interpersonal; It becomes very interpersonal, humanly anger to one another. But angry, I think you're right. I think maybe it is a, the correction that you are suggesting. Is oh, I, I'm just, just not, not the correction to him, no, anyone, yeah. but just to just our language, how we use it. Not sure, you know.
0: Sure, there's um, there's just if I could take a teeny, teeny little uh, detour, there's this. Brilliant myth cycle with the sage of Asishtah, best of sages, right? You know, the sages are presented uh, in uh, in um, Indian mythological texts as sort of self-composed and well, the, the, most of them, anyhow, he's the best of sages. Paragon of Brahmanical virtue, you know, ensconced in Ahimsa and such. And, and in the care of this great sage was placed Kamadain, or the wish-fulfilling cow, who was churned from the oceans by the demons and the gods in his care to be taken care of. And one day, uh, the king Vishwamitra, with his whole retinue, came chance upon the hermitage of the sage and tinihat, but the sage was able to feed them all sumptuously because of the wish-fulfilling cow. Now, once this once the king is full physically, he's not full mentally, he's wondering where did this food come from? Where did you get this? And the sage explained, Well, I have this wish-fulfilling cow, and all of a sudden the king's desire was aroused and said, Well, no, that's mine. This is my property, I should have that cow. Uh, a lowly sage like you shouldn't have that cow she belongs alongside an emperor such as myself and and uh, he attempts to steal the cow and the cow uh, protects herself and and the journey of Vasishta is actually learning to take a stand to, to to modify his idea of what ahimsa means right which uh, which uh, seemingly is just utter pacifism where he learns through this encounter with this with this greedy king to take a stand and fight and defend his ashram, defend the cow. And so it's um, it's a fascinating exchange. And, and whenever I, I think about Gandhi's ahimsa, I sort of think about this the modified Visishta 2.0, where he's now, he's still a, a, a lauded, esteemed Romanical sage, but he's learned that there is a time to fight uh, for, yeah. for protection of self, protection of... Um, and this cow, etc., etc. Anyhow, I digress. I digress. Tell us about the last chapter.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I just want to um, say just quickly about the Ashley Foster's chapter on by the The novel is the Untouchable, and that's so. He wrote his part of his novel in Gandhi's ashram, and Gandhi says, "Why are you writing this fiction? Why don't you just go fight against untouchability?" Why, why he was such a, a practical man, you know, but I used that book in my classes and that book really changes people's lives to see the untouchably can be re- replaced with any kind of oppression of people. Right. So it's very fascinating to see, but yeah. So Ashley really um, talks about that in a foster in her. So anger with Jenny Ryan, then Vinoba, Sarvodaya, then now become the into contemporary times. So Swasti Bhattacharya, who is an ethicist, um, and she also worked as a nurse. She had a nursing degree. Um, and she likes she has done a research in uh, Vinova Bhave's, um on Vinova Pave and then she um really Brings parallel because Vinoba Bhave was one of the very close follower and devotee or you uh, know disciple of Gandhi, and his Sarvodaya movement, uh, which was a land grant movement or land that he goes to the um, property owners. They said, "Oh, how many sons do you have? Four. I'm your fifth son. Give me the fifth part of your property, and you'll give it to poor or the ones needy." So that's a very interesting way to end the book. And then the last chapter, which is sort of a kind of capstone chapter by Mary Elizabeth King. She's a political scientist, a par excellence, and she does a almost a great survey of Gandhi's impact of Satyagraha and his constructive program. A lot of people have now begun to, I have too, about his constructive program how we create parallel systems, not simply we dismantle the old systems, but how do we, as they are still alive and thriving, how do we do parallel systems like voting rights? How do I bring my neighbors to go vote regardless of what people are doing? So she talks about in um, Colombia, South America, and in uh, um south africa's apartheid apartheid regime she talks about in palestine how people have been using um again like you said very relevant for um gandhian ideas to resist the occupation and all other kinds of violence and then she really talks about how women have used the uh, constructive program because women were making their own things at home and they were resisting um unjust laws and then she goes from United States to South Africa, Colombia, and she's a scholar of just really her book on Gandhi and King is is um, gotten awards and she has studied caste system and Gandhi's impact in India. So and then in the end we just have an afterward which I have um blessings from Professor Joseph Prabhu who is a religious studies scholar philosophy scholar. And he had sent me a very short rough draft, and then he was going to write a full-fledged article, and he got cancer and he passed away. So I honor him by um, writing a short piece that he had given me. I edited it, so I I shared with his wife to his partner to um, approve it. And so here we are. And before we go, I just want to talk about the book cover. Uh, The book cover is um, Gandhi and um, in his line cloth and a man guard could be a military person, looks like it.
0: A foreboding presence.
1: (laughs) foreboding presence with a big gun and Gandhi with a stick, barefoot. And they are face to face. And that is the Moral Methods and in, in Modern Challenges. And this image, this graphics was created by one of our graphic students, Albert Harrow, And he kindly um, gave his permission to use it for the book cover. And it really talks about, it really gives him image of modern challenges of violence in many forms. You cannot see the face of the man or person. We don't know the male or female, or non-binary. But the is the I see it as a symbolism for all kinds of violence, injustice, untruth, non-care wars, one side. But Gandhi is straight, looking in his eyes, and fearless. And that's what's required. That's Gandhi's legacy is through these chapters, how we can look for alternative solutions rather than status quo. And those solutions have been tried and true all over the world. It's not just in Gandhi's global legacy. From every corner in the world, his methods have been used. People have told me from all Malaysia, Indonesia, wherever, Thailand, oh, we did this, we did that, Gandhian ideas. So it's about, I think it's the time now we reconsider, rethink, reimagine, reconstruct and Gandhi's legacy can be re-emerged in today's world to for a safer, kinder, loving, um, sustainable world, earth where we can all really enjoy the gifts that we each, each one of us have.
0: That's a beautiful thought upon which to close for today. So thank you very much for putting on the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Appreciate it. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking um, with Dr. Veena Howard, uh, editor of a fascinating, um, uh, wide-ranging and and timely um, publication, Gandhi's Global Legacy, Moral Methods and Modern Challenges. Uh, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, keep thinking, and, and perhaps keep contemplating uh, legacy of Gandhi, uh, and maybe in particular, the power of Ahimsa. Take care.